you know if you were here with us last week and that Paul kicked off this series here at Carmel uh, talking about Daniel, and Daniel was a person of courageous faith. And, and there are all kinds of stories like the story of Daniel. There are stories of unthinkable odds and a seemingly undefeatable enemy, and then an underdog who rises up and accomplishes uh, what seems to be impossible. And what I really hope you will see as we move through this series is the God who is active and present and working behind the scenes in all of these stories. He's working uh, for his people's good and for his glory because it's the very same God who we worship and who we can put our faith into today. And that's great news because to be a Christian, and I know that, that that term means a lot of things to a lot of people, but I mean to really strive to think and to act and to love like Jesus, and it's a battle isn't it? Have you found that to be true? It's, it's a battle in the mind to choose the right thing. It's a battle in the heart to love no matter what. Sometimes it's, a, it's even a battle on the outside. Maybe you've had people come against you for your, your beliefs, for your love of Jesus. And so the reality is to really walk as Jesus walked. It's going to require us to have some courageous faith. And so Today, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 6. And if you didn't bring a Bible, there are some under the seats around you. If you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to keep one of those as your own. But this is on page 169 of those Bibles. But in Judges, chapter 6, we find the story of Gideon. And uh, maybe that, that name, Gideon, sounds familiar to some of you, and you're thinking, ah, this is the story about how all of the Bibles ended up in all the hotels across America. Well, it's not, it's not that Gideon. It's a different story. This Gideon story takes place around 1160 B.C., during a time that we call the time of the judges. And it's important to note that a judge in this context isn't what we think about. When we hear that word judge, we think about someone in a, a black robe holding a gavel, sitting behind a bench holding court, right? That's a judge in our minds. But when you hear that word this morning, what I want you to think about is a rescuer or a defender. It's a person who God uh, rises up to take on the enemies of Israel. And if you've ever read through the book of Judges before, you know that there's a pattern that takes place over and over in that book. And the pattern goes like this. First, Israel turns its back on God. And so then in response, God turns Israel over to her enemies. And then under the oppression of those enemies, Israel then cries out for God to save her and then finally, God raises up a judge to come in and to rescue his people. And then, unfortunately, the cycle begins all over again. You can read it time and time and time again in the book of Judges. Uh, that, that turning away from God, God turns Israel over to her enemies. Israel cries out under oppression, and then God raises up a judge to save his people. And so, uh, in Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 1, what we're going to see is, is the beginning of that cycle. So here's what it says. It says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Okay, so right there it is. Israel did evil, God gave them over to their enemies. Verse 2, Because the power of Midian was so oppressive the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. So what we see is that the Israelites are hiding. They're running up into the mountains. They're finding caves. They're finding nooks and crannies, anywhere they can go to tuck away and to hide from the Midianites. 
Verse 3 says, Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land, and they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza, and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. Now, watch this. It says, They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts, just this uncountable mass of people moving in. It was impossible to count them or their camels, and they invaded the land to ravage it. So what we see is this picture of just absolute cruelty on the part of the Midianites. They weren't coming into Israel to steal. They weren't coming in to plant a flag and to conquer that, that land. Verse 5 says they invaded the land to ravage it. They were simply coming in to destroy everything so that Israel would have nothing. The whole point, the whole goal was to inflict as much pain as possible and to keep the nation of Israel on its knees. And they were very successful at doing that for seven years. And then with nowhere else to turn, we read this in verse 6. It says, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So there it is, step three in the cycle. Uh, Israel now begs God to save them. But before we move forward in the story, I want you to realize we've just covered seven years in the first six, or six verses of Judges chapter 6. And it's, it's, it's uh, seven years of hard-heartedness towards the Lord. Seven years of, I'm going to do it my way. Seven years of, I know what's best for me. Seven years of turning their back on God. And so I wonder this morning, have you ever been there? Has there ever been a season of your life where you just turned your back on God? You said, I'm going to do it my way. Or, or maybe something difficult happened in your life. And uh, God, it just didn't feel like he was there for you. And so what's, what's the purpose of believing? What's the purpose of continuing on? And so you walked away from God. And this morning, maybe you find yourself very much like the Israelites, beat up, worn out, feeling like there's no hope, there's no place to turn for help. And I want you to know that God is just waiting for you to turn around and to cry out to him for help. Jesus said, ask and it will be given, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. And maybe part of having courageous faith for you this morning is just acknowledging, you know what, my way isn't working. I've tried it my way, I need a savior. And then call out to the Lord for help. That's what Israel did. That's, that's, uh, that was the only thing that they could do. They found themselves in that helpless, hopeless situation, and they cried out to God for help, and God responded. Now, the story of Gideon spans three chapters in the book of Judges, and so we're going to just see some snapshots in his life. We're going to move fairly quickly through his story, but I want you to jump down to verse 11 where it says this. We're going to see God's response to Israel crying out, and we're going to see the judge that he raises up. It says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now let's pause right there. It says that Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press, and this is extremely strange because, as most of you probably know, a wine, pra a wine press is a very big vat or a tub. 
And during the, the grape harvest season, they would have brought those grapes in. They would have thrown them into this tub. And then several people would get into that tub or that vat uh, barefoot, and they would walk around, and they would squish those grapes with their feet. And as the juice would come out, it would be collected uh, out of funnels into jars, and it would be left there to ferment and to turn into wine. And I just have to say, that's absolutely disgusting, isn't it? Uh, when you think about that, do you think about the drinking a, a glass of wine that's been squeezed between someone's toes? That's gross. Uh, but Gideon, he's in this wine press, but he isn't making wine. He's threshing wheat. And so uh, he's taking the stalks of wheat and he's beating them on the ground to sepa- separate the kernel from the chaff. And it's extremely unusual that he's doing this inside of a wine press because normally you'd want to thresh wheat out in the open where there's wind that can carry that chaff away and make your job a lot easier. But Gideon's afraid. And so he's hiding in this wine press, threshing his wheat, so that Midian won't come in and steal it from him. And verse 12 says, When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And doesn't that seem kind of strange that the angel calls him a mighty warrior? Here he is, he's hiding, threshing wheat in a wine press because he's scared of the Midianites, and the angel calls him mighty warrior. And jump down to verse 6. Uh, no, I'm sorry, verse 14. It says, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? And pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in all of my family. Now, we know from earlier in the story that Gideon is from a town called Ophrah. And Ophrah in Hebrew literally means the place of dust. And so Gideon is saying, you know what? Uh, You've got the absolute wrong guy. I'm from dirt town. That's what, he, that's what he's telling this angel. I'm from Dirt Town, and mighty warriors don't come from Dirt Town. And to top all of that, that off, you've picked the weakest guy in my entire family. I am not your guy. But in verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you. And right there, that's the key to this whole thing. That's the piece that makes all the difference. See, Gideon was evaluating what he could do in his own strength, wasn't he? And I think that that is very true for us still today. Listen to me. The reason why many of us resist God's promptings to have courageous faith is because we are evaluating the outcome based on our own strength, our own wisdom, our own giftedness, or the lack thereof. But what we're going to see today is that God loves to use the weak to shame the strong. He loves to use the unwise to shame the wise. And so if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write this down. Don't accept the title of weakling if God has called you warrior. Don't accept the title of weakling if God has called you warrior. Listen to me. This is very important. He's not evaluating your strength. He's offering you his Okay, and that makes all the difference, and it's the key to the whole story of Gideon. So the Lord says, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. But before he goes to fight the enemies of Israel, God has a task for Gideon at home. And remember, the reason why the Israelites are under this oppression from Midian is because they've turned their backs on God. And in fact, they're trying to blend the worship of the one true God with all of these other pagan gods. And so they've made this kind of blended religion where there's not just one God. We're going to worship a bunch of different gods. But look at verse 25. It says, that same night, 
The Lord said to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, and tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. Offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So why does, why does God you know, put this step in front of Gideon? Why is this an important next step for him to take? Well, I think there's a, a couple of things going on here. First, he's reminding Gideon of the, of the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. God is saying to Gideon, I want your complete allegiance. No more of this blending, I'm God and, and, and false gods. And I want your total loyalty. I want to be your one and only God. But there was also a relational element to this. Because did you catch whose altar that was that he's supposed to tear down? His father's. said, so that's your dad's altar. His dad likely built that altar. And his, his friends and his family likely came and worshipped at that altar and in front of those Asherah poles. And so there would be huge relational consequences for what the Lord has asked Gideon to do. But before he can become a mighty warrior on the battlefield, Gideon has to put things right at home. He has to take a stand in his own home, in his own town, in front of his friends and his family. And maybe it's a good time to stop and ask, you know, to stop and evaluate, is there anything in our lives right now that God might want us to deal with ahead of the battle? Is there anything in your life right now that you know isn't honoring, isn't pleasing to the Lord, but you know to change course, it's going to rock the boat a little bit. It's going to make some people upset. There's going to be some consequences. It might be a, a very humbling situation for you to go and to admit that there's something wrong in your own life. But I can promise you this from experience. God almost always challenges us to personal obedience before he uses us in a mighty way. And our response to that challenge will set the course for whatever it is that God has ahead of us. What God is asking you to do, it might be painful, it may be humbling, it may not make sense to the people around you, but know that when God calls you to personal obedience, he's often getting you ready for the battle ahead. And that's what he was doing in Gideon. And as you read on, you find that he was obedient to the Lord. He destroyed that altar. He tore down those poles. He sacrificed that bull with the wood of the Asherah poles. And the people of his town wanted to kill him for it. But they soon had a much bigger problem on their hands. Jump down to verse 33. It says, Now all the Midianites and Melekites and other eastern peoples, they joined forces and they crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So here they come again. Just as they had done for the last seven years, they're coming in, they're going to destroy everything. They want to keep Israel on its knees. Verse 34 says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abyssalites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet him. So he's rallying as many people as he possibly can to come out and to unite, and we're going to fight them this time. And doesn't something seem very different from the Gideon that we met at the beginning of this story? I mean, the man who we first found hiding and afraid and making excuses, I'm not your guy. Now he's blowing the trumpet, and he's rallying the troops, and he's ready to fight. I mean, he's ready to get in the well with the muskrat, right? I mean, he's going after it. That's a terrible illustration. But what changed? What was it that changed inside of Gideon? Well, I have to believe it has everything to do with that statement in verse 34. It said, the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon. 
And in the Hebrew, the original Hebrew, it would translate like this. It would, it would translate, the spirit clothed himself with Gideon. So it's almost a picture, if you think of the Holy Spirit as a robe, just wrapping around, uh, or I'm sorry, of Gideon as a robe, just wrapping around the Spirit of God. And now it's, it's the Spirit inside of Gideon. It's the Spirit who's driving him, directing him, giving him courage. And what we see in the Old Testament is that the Holy Spirit would often come on people for a specific time, for a specific task, for a specific purpose, but then he would also leave. He didn't always come to stay. That's why David prays in Psalm 51, he's begging God, don't take your Holy Spirit away from me, because he knew that was the reality. The Spirit hadn't been given as he's been given now. That's the reality for followers of Jesus today, is that the Holy Spirit, he comes and he stays. And this is why Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 16, we've looked at this before, when he's getting ready to go to the cross, he knows he's going to be leaving his disciples, but he tells them, it's actually better for you if I go away, because when I go, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. And even though I was with you most of the time, you know, a lot of the time, the Holy Spirit's going to be with you all the time. And he's going to guide you, and he's going to direct you. He'll be in you, convicting you of sin and righteousness. And it's that same powerful spirit of God that came on Gideon in this story that's alive inside of us today. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's true for you. And it made all the difference for Gideon then. And I believe it makes all the difference for us now. So I want you to keep that in mind as we read the rest of this story. We're going to come back to it in just a minute. But Gideon has assembled his troops uh, but in Judges chapter 7, something surprising happens. Look at what it says, starting in verse 2. It says, The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. So you add those two numbers up and you see that uh, 32,000 men had answered Gideon's initial call to arms. And 32,000 men sounds like a lot, but don't forget, they're up against 135,000 Midianites. And so they're outnumbered almost five to one from the get-go. And honestly, for you and I in America today, that doesn't sound that bad. I really enjoy watching um, documentaries and movies about uh, our military. I enjoy watching that. I appreciate what our, our veterans have done and, and what our army does. And, uh, and I love watching, and I'm always fascinated by the fact that three or four well-trained and well-equipped men can hold a position against hundreds. I mean, that's just the reality for some of our elite forces today, that they can do that. But that's not what we're talking about here in the story of Gideon. What we're talking about 3,000 years ago in biblical times is often just hand-to-hand -hand combat, maybe a sword, maybe a spear, a bow and arrow. But realistically, you're talking close-up, hand-to-hand combat. And when you're talking odds of five to one, that's huge in hand-to-hand -hand combat. If you think about five guys coming at you at once, I mean, you'd have to have some serious skills to come out on top. But God looks at those odds. He looks at those five to one odds, and he says, Gideon, it's, those odds are too good. You got too many men. We need to thin them out a little bit because I don't want the people boasting about this. I don't want them thinking that they're the ones who did this in their own strength. So Gideon says, if you're afraid, you don't have to stay. And more than two-thirds of his army walks away, and he's left with 10,000 men. So now we're down to one Israelite for every 14 Midianites. 
Okay, so if you can imagine being in a fight with five guys and how hard that would be, now you're in a fight with 14 guys. And it, the odds now are just impossible, right? I mean, how would you possibly take on 14 guys at once? That's just a lynching. Without God on your side, you, you're not coming out of that alive. But God's not done yet. Look at verse 4. The Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. One against 14, that's still too good. We're going to thin them out a little bit more. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. And so what we read in the following verses is that the Lord gives Gideon a test for his men. He says, send them down there, tell them to get something to drink, and watch how they drink. And so some of the men, they scoop the, the water up in their hands and they lap it up like a dog. And some of the men get down on their knees and they, they just kind of suck it in right off of the water source. And God says, the ones who drank like a dog, those are the ones who are going to fight with you. And he found that 300 men drank like a dog. So now we're down to, a, to a, a unit of 300 men, just 300 men to take on 135,000 Midianites. So now we're down to one Israelite for every 450 Midianites. That's insane. I mean, that's, that's beyond insane. That's not, that's not even a battle. That's just suicide. And remember, that's, that's why the Lord is doing this. He doesn't want anyone to take credit for what's about to happen. Now jump down to verse 16. It says, dividing the 300 men into three companies... So we've got 100 men in three companies. He placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Now let's think about this for just a second. If you're one of Gideon's troops, you've watched uh, your unit drop from 32,000 men down to 300 men. And now your commanding officer comes to you and he hands you not a sword, but a trumpet and a jar. What would be going through your mind? I mean, wouldn't you be thinking, Gideon has lost his mind. What does he want me to do? Play him a little tune and pass the jar for a collection? I mean, this is nuts. But the fact is, God not only uses unlikely people, he also uses unlikely plans. And even though that's what I think when I read this story, that, that man, I, I would be thinking, Gideon is absolutely insane. Do you know we have no record of a single man questioning Gideon? on that move. Not a single record of a man saying, this is, this is unusual. In fact, what hit me last week as I was thinking about this message again is that this isn't just the story of Gideon's courageous faith. It's the story of 300 men who had courageous faith. To, to follow Gideon as Gideon was following the Lord, to do what he called them to do. And then look at verse 20, what it says. It says, The three companies blew the trumpets and they smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in the right hands the, the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! And while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. So it's just this picture of mass chaos. The Midianites, they hear this army has surrounded them now. There's trumpets blowing. There's men yelling and screaming. And they're absolutely freaking out. In verse 22, it says, When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. And the Midianite army fled. And as you read on, you find that all of Israel was called out to pursue the Midianite army, and none of them escaped. And just 300 men were able to defeat an army of 135,000 without ever raising a sword. And what the Lord promised Gideon the man from Dirt Town, hiding and afraid, he fulfilled it. 
And Gideon became the mighty warrior that God called him to be. So what does this mean for us today? We hear these stories from the Old Testament. This one's 3,000 years old. It's over 3,000 years old. Why would this story still be worth telling and still be worth studying today? Well, I want you to write something down in your notes because I think it's as applicable to us today as it was to Gideon back then. And it's a phrase from one of my favorite pastors, uh, Pastor James McDonald. And I think it sums this whole thing up for us. Here's the phrase. Ordinary you, extraordinary God. Ordinary you, extraordinary God. Write it down. Because Gideon's greatest attribute was not that he was a mighty warrior. He wasn't a mighty warrior. Not until God gave him that title. Gideon was just an ordinary guy from an ordinary family in an ordinary town. But Gideon's greatest attribute was that he was willing to do what God asked him to do, even when he knew it could cost him everything. And we saw that when the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, something changed. Something new was driving him. And it was God who carried him through these extraordinary events all the way to victory. Ordinary Gideon, extraordinary God. It was true for Gideon then, and it's true for us today. And so here's the key. It's Zechariah 4.6. Zechariah 4.6 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And James McDonald says it this way. If God uses us, it's not about what we bring to the table at all. The extraordinary thing is always, always, always God. It's not about what we bring to the table. It's about our extraordinary God who is able to do exceedingly more than we could ever ask or imagine. Ordinary you extraordinary God. So I want you to think, is there something in your life right now that is so terrifying, so crippling, so debilitating that like Gideon, you would really like to just find a hole in the ground and hide? I mean, what is taking the legs out from underneath you right now? What is the battle that you're in? Maybe it's a situation at work. Uh, Maybe it's a a difficult relationship, maybe even a relationship in your own home. Could it be a health situation or some kind of a, a decision that needs to be made, but there doesn't seem like there's any good answer? If I go this way, it's bad. If I go that way, it's not gonna work out and it just seems impossible. What is it for you right now? And as you've worked through all the possible ways that this could play out, could it be that you have missed the most important piece of the puzzle? Because again, our natural response is always that we would evaluate these things in light of our own strength, right? In light of our own giftedness, in light of our own wisdom. Am I smart enough? Am I strong enough? Do I have the courage to get through this? Just with inside myself. But Zechariah tells us, no, it's not by might. It's not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And I just want to remind you this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, his Holy Spirit is inside of you. And it's the same powerful spirit that raised Jesus Christ up from the dead. That's the power that we've been given. His role is to guide you, to to show you the right thing to do, the right way to go. But I think the question becomes, are we listening? Are we listening for his voice? Are we responding in obedience? Are we believing that we serve an extraordinary God? 
And perhaps it's time for you this morning to step out in courageous faith and to know that no matter what you're up against today or tomorrow or 40 years from now, when the odds seem impossible, remember that you serve an extraordinary God. Ordinary you, extraordinary God. Let's move forward in courageous faith based off of our knowledge of that extraordinary God today. I want to give you some time to pray and to evaluate this morning. And I would love it if you would close your eyes and bow your heads with me now. And I just want to ask, uh, maybe you're one of those people who finds yourself far from God this morning. Maybe when I was describing Israel and, and the reality of turning their back on God and, and, and their enemies come against them and they just feel beat up, they feel worn out, they feel like there's nowhere left to turn. Maybe that's really who you identify with this morning. And I just want to remind you that God is waiting for you. He is patiently waiting for you to call on his name. And in talking about the Lord's return, Paul says, you know what, God isn't slow as some would regard slowness. You feel like he's slow in coming back. He's not. He's patient. He's patient. He doesn't want that that anyone should perish. He's waiting for you. And so today can be that day for you to call on his name. The Bible tells us today is the day of salvation. Don't wait till tomorrow. But maybe pray a prayer like this. Maybe just let the Lord know, God, I've tried it my own way. I've tried doing my own thing and it isn't working. And I need you to rescue me. I need a savior. I believe his name is Jesus and I want to surrender to him this morning. If you're ready to pray a prayer like that today, we'd love to talk to you after the service. I'm going to be up here. Uh, Our prayer team's going to be up here. We want to come alongside of you in the journey ahead. But I know that there are others here today and you've already surrendered your life to Christ. But isn't it true that in the battle, it can be really hard to keep our eyes focused on him? I mean, there are so many things that distract us and want to pull our eyes away and get us consumed just by life on earth and the troubles here on earth. And I wonder this morning, have you slid into a pattern of evaluating and operating out of your own strength? thinking I've got to be strong enough, I've got to be smart enough, I've got to be great enough. And the reality is you're not, I'm not. And it feels hopeless and you feel helpless. But I just want to remind you this morning that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He has given us his one and only son. He has given us his Holy Spirit. He has held nothing back. He's given us his word and he's given us his promise that he is coming back one day to take us home, to dwell with him forever. And so, Father, I pray this morning that until that day, until that day when Christ comes again, that you would find us listening for your Spirit's voice, you would find us obedient to what he says, that in the midst of the battle, Lord, you would find us displaying courageous faith. Don't let us settle for the title of weak when you have called us warrior, not by our strength, Father not by our might, but by your spirit, Lord, and for your glory. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things this morning.